Our Father, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for the sufficiency of your word, the power of your word, the authority of your word. We need this word now in our lives to give us hope. We need this word in our lives to give us direction. We we need this word to bring us to transformation. And, And our Father, we do need to be changed. Some of us, Father, are are still operating without Christ, living in the world and by the world. We are not rightly related to Jesus Christ and we need salvation from our sin. And we pray that you would accomplish that even in this service this morning. Others of us, Father, have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior already, but we are still in this battle against the flesh and and we need tr- increasing transformation and change. And, and we know the power of Your Spirit and the power of Your Word to change us. And so we ask that Your Spirit would accomplish His work in our lives this morning. Would You change us by what we are about to hear? We pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. One of the hardest parts of the spiritual life is dealing with the daily reality that we are in a fight. Spiritual maturity does not come easily. Sin rarely waves the white flag of surrender. The flesh will sometimes propose a truce with sin and will will give us terms and conditions by which we might come to a truce with sin. But when those terms are offered and when those terms are enacted, very often the flesh will then rebel against us and subvert us and commit traitorous acts against us. The battle against the flesh and indwelling sin is long and hard. But the fight against the flesh is also necessary. It is necessary because of the Spirit of God who is given to us at the point of salvation as a down payment of of the promise of the full redemption that we will will have in Christ. And, And it is necessary because He is the daily provision for the presence of Christ in our lives and He has been given to us by Christ so that we might fight against sin. As, as we've already seen in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God has been given to us so that we might be freed from the power of sin. So Paul says in Romans 8 verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in or by Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You've, you've been set free by the Spirit through the work of Christ from sin and from death. And not only have you been set free from sin, but you have also been set free to accomplish and fulfill the work of the law. So he says in verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The Spirit is given through Christ and through Christ's work so that He can produce the fulfillment of the law. Not perfectly, not for the sake of our salvation, but for the sake of our sanctification. We increasingly accomplish the the deeds that God has set forth for us in this law. But we not only fight against sin through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not the only one that is given to us so that we might fight against sin, but we also must work with the Spirit of God against sin and against the flesh. This is why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, he says, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, if you are living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's reminder there is that we must, in in accordance with and alongside the work of the Spirit, we must also be actively involved in killing the deeds of the flesh, killing the deeds of the body, 
we might say, mortifying the flesh. In these two verses, Paul simply says that to live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. If we will live in the Spirit of Christ, if we will live as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God has come to live in us, then we will live aggressively against the flesh. We might say it this way. To be alive in the Spirit is to live opposed to every manifestation of the flesh in our lives. I appreciate what Ray Ortland Jr. has written in his book, Supernatural Living for Natural People. He says it this way, Life in the Spirit means killing our sinful impulses. The flesh cannot be refined into holiness. It needs to die. It must die. And if we are going to live in the Spirit, then we will live aggressively against the flesh. And and Paul, in these two verses, gives us two realities about our relationship to the flesh. Two two realities about our position in Christ, our, our having the Spirit to dwell in us, and how we will relate in the Spirit to the flesh. To live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. And if we will do that, he says, if you're in the Spirit, you have no obligation to the flesh. You have no obligation to the flesh. You you have no responsibility to the flesh. And, And in saying this, he's going to give us in verse 12 a reminder. And the reminder he gives us is that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free. Notice what he says, verse 12. So then, brothers. So then is a conclusion that the apostle is drawing from the previous verses. In fact, even in the Greek, it's it's a compound word, or it's actually two separate words that he uses in combination to, to emphasize that there's a significant conclusion that is being drawn here. We might translate it or give it the sense of, consequently, therefore... And so Paul twice says there's, there's a conclusion that needs to be drawn from this. He's, he's wanting to be emphatic about understanding the work of the Spirit in our lives and how we ought to be thinking about the Spirit working in our lives. Since, since Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ has granted to us the indwelling of the Spirit, there is one inescapable conclusion that you must make. And Paul wants us to understand this inclusion, this conclusion is not just for him, but it is for all believers in Jesus Christ. So he says, so then, brethren, or so then, brothers. He's, he's putting, he's, he's addressing them as those who are united together in Jesus Christ. There's, there's not one who is superior and one who is inferior, but all are equal in Jesus Christ. And, and he even makes that even more clear by using the the plural singular pronoun or the plural uh, first person pronoun we so then brethren we are under obligation that is we the apostle paul and we the roman believers and paul is not saying we uh, paul's not saying i have an obligation or or paul's not saying you have an obligation but he says we all have this same obligation um, in unity and in harmony. We're, we're all in the same position before Christ. I don't have a superior position because I have an apostleship. You don't have an inferior position because you are Roman believers without apostleship. We're all in the same place together. And, and what is this truth then? What is this conclusion that Paul is making because we're in Christ and because we have the indwelling of the Spirit the conclusion is given to us in the next phrase. So then, brother, brothers, we are under obligation. Now, some of your translations will say debt. We have a debt. We have a responsibility. And then, and then he sets up a negative and a positive. He says, so then, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We no longer have an obligation to live to the flesh. So someone, someone might ask the question, um, I still have a human body. 
And I still have this, this fleshly body that, that has an inclination to, to doing imperfect things and even unrighteous things. And, and if I am a believer in Jesus Christ because of the fact that I still have this physical body, this, this fleshly body, body, and am I still obligated to sin? Do I have an ongoing compulsion or need even to sin? And the Apostle Paul says clearly, no, we have no obligation to live according to the flesh. Now, there is an obligation, but interestingly, Paul never gives the other side of it. If you, did, did, did you notice that? We're under obligation. He says not to the flesh, and then he, he plays out what what living according to the flesh looks like in verse 13 and how, how the believer ought to respond to that. But he never says what the obligation is. But it's obvious what it is, isn't it? All the way through this chapter, he's been, he's been con- comparing and contrasting the flesh and the spirit. And so he says our obligation is not to live according to the flesh. And the implication clearly is our obligation is to live according to the Spirit, or by the Spirit, and according to the Spirit. We're in obligation to Him. There is an obligation. The obligation is not to the flesh, but the obligation is to the Spirit. Whatever else you hear, hear this. There is no obligation to the flesh. You are not obliged to engage in sin. Someone has rightly and simply said, the flesh has no rights. We owe the flesh nothing. And another writer has added, the flesh has no claim on us. We, we, we think about sin sometimes in this way. Before, before I came to Jesus Christ... I was imprisoned in my sin. I was in bondage to my sin. I was enslaved by my sin. And everything, everything I did was sin. I could do nothing but sin. Even my best intentions, even my best pursuit of moralism and doing the right thing was sin because I was trying to do it without God. And, and trying to do it without God was a rebellion against Him. And so whether I was engaged in licentious living and blatant and willful, heinous sin, or whether I was, whether I was a, a really good person, as you looked at it externally, but trying to be a good person without Christ, it was all sin against me. I was in bondage to it. I could do nothing else. I could do nothing that was pleasing to God. But now I've been, I've been released from that master. And, and, and it says in, in Colossians that, that there is a certificate of debt that has, that has been posted against me. And that certificate of debt has listed all of the sins. And it says about Jesus Christ, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, He forgave us all our transgressions and He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. That list that had all of the lists of all of the sins and all of the violations of God's law that were posted against me, he said, that has been, that has, I've been freed from that and I've been declared free from that. There is no more list against me. It's been taken away. It's been removed. And, and I think about that list sometimes and I think about the fact that, that I was in bondage and and now that list has been removed, but it still feels like I'm in bondage sometimes. It still feels sometimes like I need to go to my probation officer once a week or once a month and check in and see, see if I'm okay, if I'm, if I'm good to go. I feel like I still need to, to take tests that the, that the probation officer gives me in order to make sure that I'm clean and, and still doing what I need to do. And I still feel like I need to write checks of restitution to, to pay back the debt of my sin. And I look at that certificate and I say, I know it says that I'm free, but it doesn't always feel like I'm free. 
And what do I do? Do I still need to listen to my old jailers? Do I still need to obey them? When we think, I've been absolved of the guilt of my sin, but I I really don't have any power to resist sin, and I not only will still sin, but, but I have to go back to it, I'm compelled to go back to it, Paul says a resounding no. You are not obliged to go back to sin. You you no longer have to live under the mastery of sin. In fact, sin no longer is your master if Christ is your master. You have been set free and sin has been condemned in the flesh. We really have died to sin. That's his whole point in chapter 8, verse 1, right? After the whole section in 7, 14 to 25 where he's talking about this battle that I'm still feeling with the flesh and the indwelling sin that still remains and, and still feeling frustrated with that he says in 8 1 as a conclusion therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the condemnation is removed the penalty is removed and the power has been removed we really have died to sin we really have been set free I appreciate what John MacArthur has written on this verse he says because of Christ's saving work on our behalf the sinful flesh no longer reigns over us. The sinful flesh no longer reigns over us to debilitate us and drag us back into the pit of depravity into which we were all born. Although there will always be some lingering influence of the flesh until we meet the Lord, we have no excuse for sin to continue to corrupt our lives. The Christian's obligation is no longer to the flesh, but to the Spirit. Oh, my friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no obligation to the flesh. You have been set free. But along with that, the Apostle Paul also gives us a warning in verse 13 at the beginning of the verse. And the warning is simply this, that fleshly living will bring eternal dying. Fleshly living will bring eternal dying. So he says in verse 13, you're not under obligation to live to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now notice in verse 12, Paul is all-inclusive, right? We, brothers, notice what he does in verse 13. He goes from the first person to the second person. Verse 12, it's we and brothers. Verse 12, verse 13, it's you. And it's, it's Paul's way of inviting self-examination and saying, is this me? Is this my life? Is this how I am operating? It's important to ask the question, is this me? Is this the way I live? Because Paul is speaking about a certainty. When you live according to the flesh, that is, when you live according to the power and domination and control of the flesh, when, when everything you do is a manifestation of the flesh and, and there is no manifestation of the Spirit of God in you, there's no evidence of His transforming work in your life. Paul says, if that is you, if you are living according to the flesh, if you are living empowered by the flesh, you must die. It's a certainty. In fact, he says, it's, it's something of a destiny. It's inevitable. It is a necessary consequence. That, that phrase, you, you must die, has a sense of you are on the precipice of dying and it is about to happen. You're about to fall over the cliff and, and go to your destruction. And, and the death he is talking about is, is not just any death, but it is Eternal death. And we, we know it's eternal death because he's talked about physical death even for believers in, in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, that is, if, if Christ is genuinely in you and you are genuinely in Christ, if you have been moved from Adam to being in Christ, if that is your position, even though you are in Christ, he says, your body is dead because of sin. 
Your body, even though you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even though you have been saved and are being saved and will be saved, even though you are sure in your position in Christ, your body is still going to die. So Paul is not talking here in verse 13 about a physical death as if something unusual is happening to unbelievers. He's talking about a spiritual death that is unique to unbelievers. He says, you must die. This is eternal death. This is the death that comes from not believing in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the death that results from sin. Chapter 5, verse 21. This is, this is the death that comes as the wages of sin. Chapter 6, verse 23. This is, this is the condemnation that comes from sin. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6 about a similar principle. He says, chapter 6, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. If you live for the flesh, you will reap what the flesh gives, and the only thing the flesh gives is corruption and death. This is... Death in its fullness, fullest sense, it is eternal separation from God and eternal condemnation under God's wrath. And there's a question to ask here then, isn't there? The question is, are, are you living by the flesh? And if you are, you must hear Paul's warning. If you continue on that pathway to living by the flesh, you will die. You're on the roadway to the cemetery. And unless you change that pathway, you will arrive there soon. There is, there is a solution, though. And praise God, there is a solution. And the solution is to repent for that sin. The solution, if you're living by the flesh and you are not identified with Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't care about Jesus Christ, if you are committed to to living life your own way, the solution is to repent of your sin, repent of your rebellion, turn away from your rebellion, acknowledge to God, everything I do is rebellion against you. And I need your salvation and I turn to you in faith believing that only Jesus Christ can pay for the penalty of my sin. Only Jesus Christ can remove the power of sin. Only Jesus Christ is worth living for. And then if you trust in faith, having repented in submission to Christ, you will be saved. And friend, if you are in the flesh today, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I compel you, and even on the authority of the Word of God, I would command you, you must repent, you must be changed, and you must do it by faith in Christ alone. And there's another question that is implied by this. If Paul says, if we are living according to the flesh, you must die, we might also ask the question, Well, I wouldn't say that everything I do is by the flesh, but I still see the flesh in my life. I still do things that I don't want to do. I I still engage in practices, sometimes even repeatedly, that manifest the old kind of life. And does that mean that I'm going to die eternally? Can I I lose the salvation that that Christ has granted to me? Can Can I lose the salvation that Jesus Christ has given Oh, friend, if, if that's your question, and it's a legitimate question to ask from the text that certainly uh, is raised by the text, then, then you must remember that the, the truths that we've been emphasizing as we've made our way from chapters 5 through chapter 8, and that is if you are in Christ, you can never be out of Christ. Once you have been removed from being in Adam and being placed in Christ, you cannot go back to being in Adam. Once you're outside of the domain of Satan's control and you're under the control of Christ, you can never go back to being mastered by Satan. If you've been moved from darkness into light, you cannot be again mastered by the darkness. If you've been removed from the wrath of God, you can never go back to being under God's wrath. 
This has been the repeated theme throughout this these chapters. Consider, for instance, just chapter 5, verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So death used to reign, but if you're in Christ now, He doesn't say that Christ might reign. He says Christ will reign. You will reign with Christ. You are identified with Christ. And it's not something that you hope for. It is a certainty that has been granted to you. Chapter 6, verse 5. We have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. If that's true, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for He who has died is freed from sin. If you are with Christ, you have been freed from sin and you cannot go back to that. If if it was possible to go back into the state of being under Adam and under condemnation, then Paul could not say, he, he who has died is freed from sin. He would have to say something like, he who has died hopefully will be freed from sin. Or one day will be freed from sin. Or might go back under sin and might come back out again and might go back and forth a whole lot. But he cannot say unequivocally he is freed from sin because, friend, if you have been freed from sin, it means just that you are free. This is the whole point of what Paul says as well in chapter 8, verse 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before I was in, in Christ Jesus, God had a right to pour out his wrath and condemnation against me. I was a guilty sinner. And now he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the whole pattern of these chapters is if you are in Christ, you can never be outside of Christ. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 8, is about the assurance that the believer has in Jesus Christ. Remember verse 11 from last week? If the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if, if Christ's Spirit is in you, that spirit that raised Christ from the dead, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, if the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the resurrection of Christ is in you, then you can no no more die than Christ can die again. It's not just verse 11 though, but we see this as well in verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Not we hope to be, not not we desire to be, Not we were, but then we fell away, but we are children of God. Verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. These whom He justified, He also glorified. Paul speaks with such certainty about your position in Christ that he can look at you and say, you are glorified. Now look around. See anybody glorified around here? No, go ahead, look. See any perfect people? Well, I see all of you. But it's okay, you're all looking at me too. No perfect people, are there? But Paul says of our position, it is as if We've already been fully glorified. The certainty of our glorification is so sure that he can say it's already happened in the past and indeed it has in Christ's death and resurrection. Notice then verse 31. So what shall we say to these things? If that is true about our glorification, what will we say? If God is for us, who is against us? Can the flesh win? Can sin win? No. It, 
Christ overwhelms. God overwhelms. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Everything we need, He has granted to us. Friend, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are in Him unceasingly and unendingly, which is why Paul says what he does at the end of the chapter, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything, is there any sin, is there any fleshliness that once we are in Christ can separate us from Christ? No! Praise God, no! Which is why the Apostle says what he does in verse 13, you or verse Verse 12, you are not under obligation. You have been freed. And it is why, verse 13, if those who are in Christ Jesus really are in Christ Jesus, there is no worry. There is no fear. There is no death that is coming. There is assurance. There is assurance. But that doesn't remove the obligation. That doesn't remove the duty of the believer. We, we, we see the responsibility of the believer all throughout the New Testament. We are saved to good works. We have been saved so that we might be zealous, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, zealous for good works. We have been saved, Ephesians 1, to a holy and blameless life. We have been saved not so that we can continue to indulge in sin, but we have been saved so that the power of sin can be removed and we can live holy and sanctified lives. So what do we say then about the one who dies spiritually? Paul means that if one persists in living by the flesh, And the character and the nature of his life is to not live by the Spirit and the character and nature of his life is to live by the flesh, then he is spiritually dead and he will experience God's wrath. Now we're not talking about isolated instances of sin that that a believer might engage in. We're not talking about even patterns of sin that the believer is fighting against and desiring to overcome. We're we're not talking about perfection. We're not saying that the believer has to be absolutely perfect, but we are talking about direction. We are talking about the course of his life. Is, Is the course of his life oriented against the flesh and to the Spirit and to Christ? This warning then serves as an opportunity to examine ourselves. What's the direction of our lives? Are we operating out of the flesh or are we operating out of the Spirit? Are we operating out of the flesh by blatant and overt licentious rebellion or even subtle and moralistic self-righteousness? Or are we we attempting to beat back the, the sin that is still indwelling us by the power of the Holy Spirit? There's good news and a timely warning in this passage. If one is in Jesus Christ, there is no obligation to sin. We are free. But we must beware to continue pursuing Christ because the one who lives for the indulgence of his flesh and the one who lives in rebellion to the Spirit will die even if he claims Christ. So there will be some who stand before the throne of God and they say, but we named the name of Christ. We called you Lord. Lord. We we did all kinds of acts in your name and Christ will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Everything they did was out of the flesh and not out of the Spirit. Paul says the believer will live by the power of the Spirit. And, living by the power of the Spirit then, He will give evidence of that by mortifying the flesh. If you are in the Spirit, 
The second truth that Paul reveals in these verses is that you will mortify the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But here's the contrast. If you are living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that, that little phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body, is, is central in this last part of the verse. What does Paul mean by putting to death the deeds of the body? This is what theologians call mortification, killing sin or killing remaining sin which is in us. This word mortification or putting to death sin is, is used elsewhere in the Scriptures of, of literally putting someone to death. So it speaks, it's used that way in, in Luke chapter 21. It's, it's used similarly in verse 36 of Romans 8. Paul says, just as, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are constantly living under the threat of death every single day. And so to put sin to death means just what it says here. It is to cause to die. It is to put to death our remaining sin. I have found John MacArthur's explanation helpful. Mortification is a way of life where Christians seek to throttle sin and crush it from their lives, sapping it of its strength, rooting it out, and depriving it of its influence. And this is what we do. We, we work hard against it. And notice what it is that we have to mortify. He says we are to mortify, he says, the deeds of the body. Now, he's not saying that, that, that the body itself is sinful because the body does all kinds of good and beneficial things, right? So that there are arms that we have in our body, in our, on our bodies to give a, a hug of love and, and care and concern. There, there are feet on our body that, that carry the gospel elsewhere. There are, are lips by which we can speak a word of encouragement and, and communicate the truth of the gospel to those who don't believe. There are hands to, to make a meal or repair a car for someone as a, as a testimony of good deed for Jesus Christ. No, our body can do good things. He's not saying the body is inherently evil, but he is saying that the body is where the desires of our flesh are manifested. Our sinful desires are are carried out through the practices of our body, and it is those sinful practices as they're evidenced in our body that need to be killed. So in a sense, Paul is using this term, the deeds of our body, as a parallel to the flesh or even better, as an extension of the, fle- of, of the flesh. The, the, the deeds of the body are the things that come from the flesh. And he says, we have to kill it. The fact that we have to kill the sin tells us of its power. It's not enough to, t- to tie sin up and say, well, I hope it doesn't get out. It's not enough to incarcerate sin and then let it out on weekends for good behavior. It's not enough to move to a new residence and say, I'm going to leave sin behind at that old residence and and hope it doesn't follow me into my new home. No, friend, we have to kill it. Nothing less will do. It is akin to the radical amputation that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 5. If your eye offends you, tear it out. Kill it. Remove it. And what is particularly important to notice here is that Paul says, notice what he says, if by the Spirit you are, present tense, putting to death the deeds of the body. This is something that is an ongoing practice for the believer. It is his regular activity. We don't mortify sin and say... Glad that's done. All finished with that. No, it is a regular practice. It is is something that we will have to deal with every single day of our lives. But friends, the fact that God commands us to do it also ought to be an encouragement to us because He never commands what He does not equip us to do. 
And if he commands us to mortify the flesh, if he says this is, this is typical of the believer to mortify the flesh, then we can know that it is a possibility to do it. And just giving a sneak preview, he also says, I've given you the power to do it, and that power is the Spirit of God that dwells in you. You can mortify it because of the Spirit of God. Oh, friend, this should be an encouragement to you. Some of you are feeling the weight of ongoing struggle with sin. Aren't there things in your life you're just flat exhausted with and weary over? Isn't there something that you say, I am, I am sick and tired of this. I hate this. Is anybody awake out there today? Does no one feel the weight and the weariness and the burden? I do. You want an end to your anger and your pride, your covetousness, your lust, your your gluttony, your laziness, your pursuit of pleasure, your materialism. And you just see those things invading your lives. And while you don't feel necessarily that pressure on all those sins every day, every single day, you feel the weight of it and you just say, I want to be done And friend, this should be an encouragement to you that it is possible to lay these things aside. The fight is normal. The weight is normal. The weariness is normal. And the provision is normal. Christ has given the Spirit. And He is adequate. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, This means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off of it or, or say, I can keep it under control. You get as far away from it as possible. You don't just avoid things you know are sin. You avoid things that lead to it and even things that are doubtful. This is war. He's absolutely right. Notice, notice also the paradox of this verse. Those who live, notice what he says, verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Those who live according to the flesh will die. But those who put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Life comes by death. Death leads to life when the death is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and when we are in submission to Him. What then is the power to mortify this flesh? For there is a power to mortify the flesh and it is given to us, we've already alluded to it in verse 13, by the Spirit. We kill sin. We, we mortify sin. We, we abominate sin. We destroy sin by the power of of the Spirit. Now, Paul has been emphatic in, the, in this verse. It is the responsibility of the believer to mortify sin in his life. It is his job. He must attend to it. He must work at it. He is the one who pulls the knife out of the sheath, out of his sheath and slits the throat of sin, killing it. And then when he kills sin, he must realize that he is not doing it on, on his own. Sin will never be killed by the redeemed sinner alone. It can only be killed by the Spirit, Paul says. It is under the authority of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, that sin is killed. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we kill sin. There is no honor to God if we attempt to kill sin on our own, and there is no power to kill sin on our own except through the Spirit of God working within us. This is what theologians call the synergistic work of sanctification. We work and we labor and we sweat for our sanctification. We, we work as hard as we can to kill and destroy sin in our lives. And as we do that, we recognize that we can only do that through the power of the Spirit indwelling us. If you are really killing sin, it is the Spirit of God who has done that in you. In fact, that's the principle of of uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, right? 
So Paul says uh, in Philippians 2, he says that um, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you work, you labor, you sweat, you address it, you pursue it with all vigor and with all energy. And as you do that, verse 13, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You work, you labor, but you understand that as you're working and laboring, it's only the Spirit of God who can do that in you and through you. And this verse is so helpful because it's a reminder that we must work at our faith. Lack of obedience and lack of sanctification is never a matter of, well, God never took the desire away, and so I guess I just have to persist in my sin. No, we have a responsibility to work and to work hard. But this verse is also helpful because it reminds us that our sanctification and salvation are never about our own works. Our justification, our sanctification comes as the fruit of the Spirit's work in us and He really is adequate to accomplish His work for us. Two thoughts in relation to this principle. If you are struggling and you are not making progress, if you're stuck, it's fitting to ask, if I am putting to death the deeds of the body, then the Spirit is working in me. If I am not putting, the de- de- putting to death the deeds of the body, is it a sign that I'm operating out of the flesh and not out of the Spirit? Is it a sign that I'm using old world tactics for a new world responsibility? It's a time for self-examination. What's driving me? What's compelling me? And how am I operating? The second thought is, if you are struggling and you ask that question and your conscience affirms, yes, I really am fighting by the Spirit's power, but I'm I'm still struggling in this, then, then friend, thank God for the struggle. Because it is a reminder to you of your need for God and His daily grace in the Spirit of God to help you. It is a daily reminder that He will be adequate for you. Friday uh, late afternoon into the evening, Regina and I were putting some things away, getting ready for Saturday and kind of getting ready for the weekend. And, and at one point in the evening after dinner, dishes had been put away and... Regina looked over at me and she said, every article of clothing in our house, every piece of clothing we own has been washed, dried, folded, and put away. It's a miracle. And I said, thank you. Thank you so much for all of your hard work. I didn't quite say it that way, but I did say thank you. I appreciate how you have cared for our family and how you have ministered to us. I appreciate that so much. About 30 minutes or 60 minutes later, I was crawling into bed. And I reached over and held her hand. And as we're getting ready to say goodnight, I said, By the way, good news. There's something in the laundry basket that can be washed tomorrow. I've added to the pile. The pile's back. Isn't that the way it is with sin? Every day, I have a reminder that I need cleansing. And every day, I have a reminder that the Spirit is given to cleanse me. He will do this work. How will He do this work in us? How will He change us? That's the sermon for next week. Hold on to that for next week. There is a hope. If you mortify the flesh, if you put to deeds, death, the deeds of the body, notice what Paul says, you will live. Paul's not talking about our physical body living. He is talking about our spiritual body living. 
He is not saying that you can merit or earn your salvation. Everything that He has said all through this book is pointing to the fact we can't merit our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. We can do nothing to please God on our own. But He is saying that if you are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God, that means that the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you. And the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you only if He has been sent by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will only send Him if you are in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you have, by definition, life. So if you're doing this, if you're killing sin, that means you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, friend, you will live. The only way to life is through death. It is through the death of Jesus Christ and having the death of Jesus Christ imputed to us, then He kills remaining sin in us through the working of the Spirit. This is our life. It is our certain end. As we think about this passage in summary, Ray Ortland asks some helpful questions and makes a couple of poignant applications to us. What is God saying to you at this point in your discipleship? What have you tolerated in your life that you must get rid of today? Where have you left your flank unguarded and exposed to temptation? Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, Watch out! Don't let me find you living in careless ease and drunkenness and filled with the worries of this life. Careless ease. Is it even possible for modern modern Christians to stay out of that trap? Drunkenness, along with overeating and workaholism and other drugs. The worries of this life fretting over and make, fretting over making a big impression in the stock market and politics. Jesus said, don't let me find you living this way. Christians are people who live in the atmosphere of grace, not in careless ease and not in drunkenness and not in the worries of this life, but by the power of the Spirit. Christians are a new race of mankind being created by the Spirit of God. They are normal people being led along in an unmistakable new path in life for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Being a child of God makes an unmistakable difference as God leads us through mortification into an ever richer life. Will you open your heart to His Spirit? Precisely where you have been filling your emptiness with some pet substitute for God. Cut it away and let it die. Let new life be born at that very place in your soul. Our Father, we thank you that what we need for mortification, you have given to us in Christ and in Christ's Spirit. And would you, through that Spirit, change us, Transform us and conform us to you as we fight against the flesh. We ask this morning at the beginning of our time together if today would be a day of transformation. Father, we ask that this morning you might change us in a radically new way in our fight against sin. Would you Would you cause us to realize the power of the Spirit that has been granted to us? And might He change us? We pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen.